Perhaps the biggest A Song of Ice and Fire mystery is finally given screen time. Alarm bells went off in my head when the first part of the previously on was Robert looking at Liana's statue, and I bet a lot of you felt the same. Digging deep in these show-to-book comparisons has enlightened us in new ways. It's pretty hard to reread a subtle book like Feast for Crows or any of the Song of Ice and Fire books and not learn something new. That's a piece of hidden value that we get out of looking for comparisons between show to book. Now, who knew that studying the show so closely would lead to better understanding of the books? That, that sounds like an anathema to some book purists, I'm sure. Well, but here we are. Based on the number of emails we're receiving and comments posted to our show-only review episode and from looking around at other social media like Twitter, at Westeros History, for those who haven't followed us there, and Facebook, at History of Westeros, this is the most talked about episode in quite a while. A lot of people are upset, a lot of people are thrilled, and many are in between. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we love certain plots and changes, and sometimes not so much. Yeah, this is a good place to remind you that we do read all of your comments and emails. We don't always respond, though, because, well, we're really busy. It's a really busy time of the year for us. We'll the show. There's other issues as well, real-life stuff always. We do read them all and try to incorporate them into uh, our show. Yeah, and to be clear, we are still working on regular non-TV episodes. Shay and I expect to record one such within the next four to five days which would put the release about two weeks out, if all goes well. I've learned not to make promises on that anymore. Yeah. We, we occasionally run into problems and things change. We get new information. So yes. our release schedule is always a to-be-announced type of thing, but we try to be as consistent as possible given those limitations. Yeah, so all that said, uh, hello and welcome to another episode of History of Westeros podcast, podcast dedicated to George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire book series, as well as HBO's Game of Thrones. Today's episode is, of course, focused on the TV show, but as it relates to the book specifically. Um, and so there are spoilers for all books, no spoilers for The Winds of Winter, right? Yeah, we, uh, there's not really any Winds of Winter spoilers. There's, really. there's some vague Illusion. references to Winds of Winter, but very, very mild. And of course, I'm glad to have you back, Ashea. You know, you've been in and out with our episodes lately. You've got a busy schedule outside of the show, and we appreciate mm -hmm. you being here. Uh, Lady Gwen from Radio Westeros, good to have you back as well. Good to be back with you guys. And your partner in crime, Yoke Boy, there in England. Good to have you back as well. Hi, yeah, I'm really glad to be back doing some more TV show studying with you guys. Looking forward to it. Right on. And you guys just put out a Barristan episode, didn't you? Yeah, we yes, did. Yes, we did. And how, <laughs> how appropriate was that timing? <laughs> Pretty good. And yeah, if you need to dry your Baristan tears, then come and have a, a book look at Baristan with us where he is still alive. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the wonderful thing about the show to book split is even though he's dead on the show, well, he's still alive in the books and we don't have to be sure he's going to die anytime soon in the books just because he died in the show. That's not a parallel that absolutely has to happen. No. So <laughs> it might. So we're all a little worried, I'm sure, but... Also, thanks to Watches on the Wall for adding us to their site. The link there has helped us get a few more views. Make sure you guys send them your thanks for adding us to that because it helps us get more coverage and that helps us grow and make more episodes. That's very important. So thanks to Watches on the Wall and thanks to you guys for helping us tell them. So getting getting a better handle, like I said, we're getting a better, better handle, a mm -hmm. better hander <laughs> on what the show does well versus the books. <laughs> Joners have failed to capture the essence 
of a lot of the characters and some key moments. But they've also done a good job compressing and combining plots, combining characters, reusing characters rather than bringing in new ones, which is kind of a necessity for a TV show. There's too many realistic, real-world considerations like hiring new actors and, and all these other things that don't impact the book writing process at all. So we have to give them some leeway for some of the changes they make. But that doesn't mean we have to agree with all the changes either. So we'll, we'll as usual, we'll, be, we'll give credit where credit's due, criticize where we think it, criticism is deserved. We won't be overly negative, but we will not shy from saying negative things. Throughout this episode, the four of us will have ample opportunity to be more specific with what we liked and didn't like. Real quick, does anyone know of examples of a show that has done a better job than the books? I'm not counting Game of Thrones, of course. I don't think a lot of people think the show is better than the books. I'm sure there's a few people that think that, but I'm looking for something outside of Game of Thrones. Does anyone have any examples of that? Hmm, that's interesting. I haven't thought about it. I don't think any of us do. Maybe people who like True Blood or Walking Dead would feel something about that. Yeah, so if you guys have any suggestions there, um, throw them our way. That'd be interesting. I just, I just like to hear that kind of thing, just, just for my own curiosity. Now, with the nature of television giving rotating directors and writers, creating sub-themes and other unique qualities that are encapsulated within a single hour, themes of exposition, backstory, and action with parallel dialogue like we had in this episode, those things really stand out because they're captured all within an hour. It's a theme. It's written by a specific writer with a different with an individual directors rather than George R. R. Martin's magnum opus. So we see these different th- uh, qualities that each episode has. Lady Gwen, you noticed a few things in particular about this episode. Yeah, this episode I found had really excellent pacing overall. Um, I like the way it was organized. Um, go, you know, the characters, the, the sequence. And, it, of course, it had some very exciting content. So I think they did a great job here. So as history fans, the, the book contained references to some of the biggest major historical events in A Song of Ice and Fire history. The Tourney of Harrenhal, Robert's Rebellion, Rhaegar and Lyanna's relationship, and the Faith Militant. Uh, a couple quick notes before we start. We, would, we have a lot to cover, so we're going to go quickly here. Thanks in particular to Yoke Boy and Shea, who are both a little under the weather. But I know you guys did not want to miss out on the episode where we discuss winkle pickers. <laughs> I've, had, <laughs> I've had worse. I'll get through it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we'll explain what the hell a winkle picker is. Stay tuned. I know you're very curious. <laughs> On the edge of your seats. <laughs> if you already know what a winkle picker is, then give yourself five gold star, or a seven point of star for the theme of the episode. Maybe it's just a British thing. We'll have to see. <laughs> yes, it does sound kind of British, doesn't it? Yeah. But, so... Quick announcement, Hymn for Spring, the Tower of the Hand book featuring myself and Ashea, as well as Jeff Hartline, Stefan Sasa, Stephen Atwell, Amin Javadi, Mark Kleinheitz, Johnny from Tower of the Hand, I maybe forgot somebody, I'm doing that from memory, but a lot of great essayists. That book is available via pre-order through our website, historyofwesteros.com. It comes out on the 8th, so that's very soon, right around the corner. Hope you guys check that out. Our essay is on the Curse of Heron, the Black, and it's a lot of fun, if I do say so myself. (laughs) Now, our questions policy. We have been getting a lot of questions. We asked you to send us questions, and the response has been excellent. Sometimes we do not answer your questions because your question is more appropriate for a plot line that wasn't in this particular episode. 
example, anything to do with Arya, anything to do with Brienne, anything to do with the Boltons for the most part, those questions will be answered in the next episode, assuming all those characters actually appear in the next episode. And I just want to thank you all for posting spoilers on our YouTube comments. <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was, a couple people gave us some things we didn't want to know. <laughs> yes. Thankfully, af- till, not until after we had actually watched the episode, but, you know. <laughs> One thing to do if you guys are trying to send us questions, I have a couple suggestions for how you might think about it to get uh, improve your chances of getting a question that we actually answer here on the show. Look for cut plot lines and consider how they could be fit in some other way. We're seeing a lot of plots that reference, that are very similar to plots in the book, but quite different in some fundamental way, either the way they're executed or they're executed by a completely different character, but it's still the essence of that plot. So that's something to look for. Another thing is when something appears very different, look for subtle parallels. Sometimes within these great differences, there are some things that are very similar. They kind of sneak these hidden details in there. So an example from Wisdom James of the Los Alamos Alchemist Guild. Great name there. He suggests the possibility that Gendry will be used as a parallel to Fagon slash Aegon VI, whichever your preferred name for him is. Slash Young Griff. Slash Young Griff, right. So that would be really interesting. Instead of a different Targaryen claimant, we have a different Baratheon claimant coming out of the woodwork. I'm not sure how that could happen, but I really like the idea. That's exactly the type of thinking we're looking for. And I think a lot of, a lot of you guys out there, having heard that suggestion, your head is spinning a little bit, wondering how that could come to play. Right now, Gendry's still rowing. I don't know what we'll do about that. And an example that we came up with on our own, Balon Greyjoy. Why is he still alive? Well, I think that's because the Faceless Men are responsible for his death in the books, almost certainly. However, we're not so sure about that yet in the, in the show. But if they're going to do go that same right and kill him off by a Faceless Man, well, they wouldn't want to do that back in Season 3 or even Season 4 when the Faceless Men have hardly been introduced or introduced at all. So now that we have the Faceless Men back or explained the door is open for Balon to die so we might see that happen I do think that they could have since they have Jaken's face already in it playing devil's advocate that they could have just had Jaken kill kill him and show up and then they could have explained it after the fact right and people would be like whoa why is Jaken a guard there killing Balon Greyjoy (laughs) but yeah I I am curious whether it would be Arya witnessing the contract whether she's witnessing that would be really cool get it or is she she seeing it given to like the Waif character is she seeing get maybe a different faceless man is Arya gonna go herself next season no (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting, and, yeah. and I wonder, they've also introduced the, 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 the kind of this Faithless Man calling card. They call themselves No One, so maybe that, someone will say, hey, I'm No One, yeah. and, you know, Balon will be like, who are you? And he says, No One, and that gives it away that it's a Faithless Man. But there is the chance that the Greyjoy plot gets cut entirely. That's a reality we have to accept. Ron Snow and others have pointed out the numerical similarity. Dario mentions that he captured 93 Miranese ships, and, well... Victorian in the Iron Fleet, when he sails for Slaver's Bay, he had 93 ships. But that could just mean that the, the Greyjoys aren't the ships that bring Daenerys over. That doesn't mean that some of their other parts of the plotline couldn't be included. But the Iron Islands are not one of the five locations in this episode, <laughs> and Gendry is, again, still rowing. So we're, we'll just, we're in wait-and-see mode on that. Predictions are fun to make, but let's tackle this episode because there is a lot to cover. We, the, the locations we do have, King's Landing, Dorne, The Wall... The Crypts of Winterfell and Essos. We have R plus L equals J. We have Grayscale. We have Tragedy. And we have Foreshadowing of even more. So along the lines of Balon and the Faceless Man idea, we also have theories. And there's a lot to cover today. As I said, I hope we can get it all in this show. What are we waiting for? Let's go. 
King's Landing, the small council. Things are looking ominous for Grandmaster Picel. Yes, they are. Definitely, the small council grows smaller. I think that's what Picel said in that scene. That puts us in mind of something we mentioned last episode, how the small council is indeed very small in the opening pages of The Winds of Winter with Varys and Kevin Dead and Harris Swift off in Bravos. Ominous looking. <laughs> yeah, and there, there's always, as usual, there's always potential for some sweat, slight tweaks to what we're expecting from the books. We'll, we're expecting Pycelle to die. I think that seems like a, a, th- a thing that will be carried over. I don't see any reason for them to need to keep him around. I think a lot of people will cheer for his death because they made him not to be so creepy mm-hmm. in the show. He's Not that he isn't creepy in the books, too, but they really took it to another level in the show. Actually, I think we didn't talk about this last week. We just thought about it recently. Um, this is a good point when we're talking about Pycelle. I was talking to Aziz about it, and he was like, he was talking about how Cersei was so contemptuous of Pycelle and why she was so contemptuous exactly and I pointed out to him and I thought maybe some viewers maybe didn't notice this that she's a he's a creepy guy like she specifically says that she would not let Pycelle touch her and Pycelle takes advantage of young women and we've seen him doing that and we've we've seen and we've seen Cersei like see Pycelle accosting like her her you know ladies and so I think Cersei just thinks that he's just a scumbag, you know, yeah. predator. He needs to go. He needs to die. It's just a matter of who's going to do it. And will Kevin also be killed? That's yeah. a, in question. The show has introduced him as a character, and so far he's following basically along the same lines. He left King's Landing like he did in the books. Maybe he'll come back. Maybe he won't. They might want to keep things simple. Uh, watching her, Jack Jervis suggests, "What if Varys kills Littlefinger instead?" <laughs> and if little, maybe we, we've suggested maybe Littlefinger does some of the killings that Varys does in the books. But what if Varys is the one yeah. doing the killings and he kills Littlefinger? Uh, Whew. Yeah, that'd be that'd be uh, that's a wow moment. If that happens, I'll be truly shocked. Mm-hmm. Uh, only, but only less so because the idea is planted in my head first. But still, I'd be shocked even having heard that. <laughs> now, Lady Gwen, what about Mace Tyrell? Mace, um, before he gets sent on his mission, made an offer to assume the crown debt, which I think is not something he did in the books. Certainly gave lots of food. I think he specifically, you know, was offered to take over the Iron Bank debt. But someone else did. Tywin assumed crown debt for not one, but two kings during his time as hand. That's true. Now, Trent, Michael, and Billy Davis III, Watchners galore, galore, uh, extraordinaire, sorry. <laughs> they had a conversation on our YouTube channel, and uh, one particularly cool thing came out of it. Rog- Roger Ashton Griffiths, who is the actor who plays Mace Tyrell, apparently he has been quoted as saying his character is more cunning than he seems. So he might be in for yeah. a surprise, maybe. Yeah, we haven't seen any evidence of that other than his, you know, very clever jokes and stuff. <laughs> but if this is true, we might just be in for a surprise. He might just like to think the best of Mace. <laughs> yeah, but... maybe he's just playing up his own character there. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But that would be, I like the idea, I like planting the seed of that Mace Tyrell is more than he seems. That's, that's fun to think about. <laughs> so now we have Sir Marin Trant going with him to Bravos, and that sets up Arya, doesn't it? We'll have to see how that's played out. I expect Arya will maybe cross a name off her list. But there's more to it than just this the more straightforward angle of Arya getting a chance at revenge, isn't there, Yoke Boy? Yeah, one thing I noticed is that Cersei is oblivious. She doesn't realize that she's giving away an experienced Kingsguard. In, in the situation that she's in, this is going to make herself even more vulnerable and the, you know the theme of her bringing her own downfall might be coming into play there 
And oh, one of your watchers called Simon Donnelly points out that uh, if Merrin dies, uh, you know, presumably at Arya's hands, this could create a very nice spot in the King's Guards for one Sir Robert Strong. Right. In the in the books, the spot for Robert Strong is opened up by the death of Sir Aris Oakheart in Dorne. So we're going to have a Kingsguard, the parallel of a Kingsguard dying in a foreign, sort of foreign location. Dorne isn't foreign, obviously, <laughs> but it is exotic, maybe. It's it's away, far away from King's Landing. <laughs> and it'll be interesting to see how Maze Tyrell reacts to his death. Just he's on this trip and all of a sudden his Kingsguard presumably just vanishes. Just, just, yeah, just vanishes is yeah, what you assume. Like, like, oh, he went AWOL. That's strange. Yeah, that must be weird. <laughs> I, 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 Mace would like try to rationalize it some way like that he wouldn't just think he was killed i, I don't know what yeah. mace is gonna think now and watching her grant dickerson wonders if Marin will die acting out Sirio's death kind of the way wrath of sweetling has his go down so we'll see if if there's any kind of additional parallels there i hope so oh yeah now let's talk about cersei and the high sparrow a funny note, our, our good buddy, our good Twitter buddy, Ian Trone, who is the manager of all the podcasts, not literally, he keeps track of all the different Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire podcasts, and that is a lot of work because there are so many out there. But he pointed out something really neat, and that is, in the books, the term High Sparrow is coined by Moon Boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no joke. That might be why the High Sparrow in the show is making fun of his own title. He's like, ah, King Turtle, all that. You know, that uh-huh. might have been a, 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 a sly reference to Moon Boy. Mm-hmm. So, Lady Gwen, you noticed something interesting uh, at the beginning of this conversation where the camera starts. Mm-hmm. It starts with a close-up of a scroll. scroll has a mockingbird sigil on it. And, of course, we looked at the screenshot. And it says something about my establishment, and it's signed Peter Baelish. So remember in the last episode, the High Septon was seized from Littlefinger's establishment, and of course Olivar was squawking, this is Lord Peter Baelish's establishment. And that was before Cersei sent the original message to Littlefinger, um, so I wondered if this is some way connected. It's the only thing I could think of. Um, it's not to take away at all from the idea that Littlefinger's coming to be the hand, because I put pretty good odds on that at this point. Yeah, it seems like some some sort of, maybe Littlefinger has a lot of dirt on different people by being a brothel owner. Maybe there's some, some relation to that. Olivar, of course, would be at the center of that. More on Olivar a bit later. What was your, but what was your, did you have another thought about that? No, uh, I- but how they're Other connected. than the possibility that it's related to the last, the scene from the last episode, not really sure. The previous High Septon's portrayal, similar to Septon Reynard of the Most Devout, who is known by Cersei to frequent the Street of Silks. Uh, this is a, kind of a, a replay of that same hypocrisy that we're seeing through a different lens, the, the show, book through show. Now, it's a sim- also very vaguely similar in concept to the idea that sorcery is like a sword without a hilt. We've got, we're talking Melisandre says that line, or a couple, that line comes up in a few different ways. But Cersei is kind of doing the same thing here. She's, what she's working with the faith militant is very similar. She's playing with fire, or wildfire, in a sense, you could say. (laughs) Cersei loves her wildfire. Does he, does the High Sparrow know already about Robert's murder, or sleeping with Lancel? What do you think, Lady Gwen? I put pretty good, good odds on he does. He has these two lines delivered to Cersei. May the gods judge them justly, and all men are equal in the eyes of gods. And the way he's looking 
um, as he says that, um, just kind of gave us the chills. Um, and then also, of course, there's people on the street calling out bastard and incest to Tommen. So, you know, it's obviously commonly known uh, in the streets. So figure he's got to suspect at least. I I did have one thought about, um, by the way, back going back, I didn't have a chance to say it before going back to uh, Littlefinger's establishment in that letter. I had a thought that Cersei might have been looking for ways to catch Loras out and that Littlefinger might have um, told her that there's a boy, there's some people at my establishment that could further your, um, there's a word further in there as well. Hmm. That You're right, that is the word further. Could, like, and so then they get Olivar, who of course is Loras' lover, or they've had sex, and so then they go right. They, they go to the they go to Littlefinger's brothel. They trash it. They we see Olivar, and then they go right to get Loras. And so I'm thinking that they got some sort of proof by going there. That um, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, further proof can be found in my establishment. Yeah, something something like, something that. like yeah. that maybe. Although you think it was better for Littlefinger to have the Tyrells in power, but chaos is good, I guess. Yeah, who knows what game is playing? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> so in a general. The relationship certain characters have with the High Sparrow and with Cersei and apparently with Littlefinger and or Olivar is going to really play out because these secrets are, are getting spilled and that's going to blow up for some people. Lancel's relationship with the High Sparrow in general is really interesting and it's not fully explored yet or, or shown what kind of connection they have. Surely they have some sort of connection or will have some sort of connection. But Lancel, of course, has a lot of dirt on Cersei and perhaps a few other people as well, but mostly on Cersei. There's that very ominous line that's very hypocritical by Cersei where she says that she's referring to Loras, but she talks about how this person supposedly is shielded by gold and privilege. And I thought it was really funny that this, the High Sparrow makes me wonder what exactly he's thinking because he's, he replies that, yes, he does need to, you know, he, he specifically <laughs> says he, and I feel like that was a cunning choice to make, to make Cersei feel comfortable to not say she. So, Yoke Boy, what do you think about this whole situation? Yeah, and, well, as I said earlier, you know, this is Cersei bringing about her own downfall, isn't it? It's the the pace is picking up with this kind of theme. Um, first, empowering the faith, and then mentioning... It was actually Cersei who mentioned, you know, hidden, uh, hidden behind privilege, which, as you say, is quite hypocritical. Uh, she could be describing a, f- a face herself there. So, yeah, th- this theme of bringing uh, about her own downfall is something which really comes from the books. I think in the books, there's a more of a slant on her, her kind of descent into slight madness or at least paranoia, I'll say. And again, she she does um, the faith militant in the books. Yeah, and another another parallel to Olivar is that we have the Kettleblacks who have a lot in common with what Olivar is doing, not in terms of the type of character they are, but in types of in terms of what they know and how they're caught up in the middle of people who are more powerful than them, and they're kind of kind of turning into pawns. It looks like Olivar is going to be caught up in some things, and the Kettleblacks got up, got caught up in all kinds of things that in, ended up in, in torture and murder and all kinds of awful things. <sighs> so let's talk about the Faith Militant themselves, though. They they go on the warpath right away. They're destroying all things of vices. We see them down by the docks, smashing other religious idols that are not related to the Seven. We see the soldiers, the, the guards not helping, which is ominous for authority in general, How who is taking over. And we see preaching against the brothels, which also happens in the books. 
it's not as aggressive and bloody as this. We don't have, you know, the faithful storming brothels and killing people yeah. like we do in the show, but it's it's at least somewhat familiar. So, Yoke Boy, tell us more about differences between the Faith Militant and the books and show. Okay, Faith Militant and the books. This is comprised by two factions. One, the Warrior's Sons, and the other called the Poor Fellows. The Warrior's Sons are knights, and it seems like they're quite privileged people who've actually given up their assets and titles. Uh, they're nicknamed Swords, and and Lancel Lannister is one of them. Essentially, they're knights who swear to the High Septon instead of swearing to a lord, really. And the poor fellows who have united with the Warriors' Sons, they are called Stars. And really, they're just commoners that have kind of taken on this religious streak and kind of armed themselves with... It's a bit like the pitchfork kind of thing. They've armed themselves with whatever the heck they can arm themselves with, because... You, you know, this is kind of uh, rabble militia. And the faith militant are th- these com- composed of these two orders. Yes. So the as part of the deal with the faith, when they were disarmed about 250 years ago, the crown said it would protect the faithful. So they haven't been living up to that. Not at all. The, the faith. Not only have the faithful been getting killed and and starved just like a lot of other areas in Westeros. During the War of the Five Kings, this protection was, not only did it fall off, if it ever was really strong, but it flipped in a lot of ways. Tywin specifically ordered the Mountain and Sir Amory Lorch and the Bloody Mummers to go off and do their worst, which included sacking several seps. In the books, we see this on on the pages directly in front of us. We don't just hear about it. Lots of septs and septons and septas and silent sisters have really awful things done to them. And it's the crown is doing the opposite of his duty in this case. It's no wonder, it's almost no wonder that the faith isn't more aggressive towards House Lannister, but I guess a lot of this is because they're not aware of who was giving out the orders. So we do also see, or rather, so that's it's kind of funny to think about Tywin, who supposedly managed his family so well, <laughs> he just creates this problem for <laughs> for them. Of course, on the other hand, he would never have made the mistake that Cersei made by letting them rearm. That was a giant blunder. Now, in the books, we also see a lot of seven-pointed stars. We don't see them carved into people's heads so much. That's a, a small show change there, apparently. We do have one example of someone painting a star on their head, and we have we do have examples throughout history and in the modern series of people carving the, the seven-pointed star in their chest. And there's reference to the people carving it into their just into their flesh, which could mean anywhere really. So lots of fanaticism uh, in in the faith. Here's a here's a quote. The seven-pointed star went everywhere the Andals went, born before them on shields and banners, embroidered on their surcoats, sometimes incised into their very flesh. And Sir Robert Strong himself is adorned in seven ornaments, or in ornaments of the seven, not number seven ornaments. (laughs) The plumes on his helmet are matched to the seven colors of the seven gods, and his cloak is fastened by two seven-pointed stars. So a little uh, homage to the faithful there. Let's talk about Loras and his arrest. This is a, a direct strike at... Marjorie, if not Haas Tyrell in general. In the books, she asks Kyburn about prophecy and his thoughts on it in general. And he tells her she already knows what she, what needs to be done, which is to kill Marjorie. <laughs> it's like, that's the only way you can beat a prophecy is to do something like this. Yeah, and I found it strange that we were shown 
the Valenquar in the first episode episode of the series, but but since then we haven't kind of revisited it, and we don't really get a strong sense that it's affecting Cersei's actions. So I kind of think they're missing the punch on the Valenquar at the moment. I hope they, you know, have Cersei talking about her experience and really show that it's it's it gripped her. You know, yeah, that's really that's a good point, and we we wonder. If, uh, well, rather, I've been pointing it out, we've been pointing it out in the show, in our reviews, that that's something to keep in mind, that why Cersei is acting a little bit the way she is, is because of the Nagy the Frog prophecy. But you're right, they really, the show should probably remind people of that. On the other hand, I guess maybe people are just used to Cersei doing crazy things, and it just, just, (laughs) maybe they just feel like that fits. Uh, Now, uh, one thing I saw people reacting to was Loras's t- taking. Some people thought maybe it went down a little too easily. At first, I thought the same thing, but then I rewatched it. Um, well, I rewatched it several times, and it's clear to me that now that Loras not only had put down his sword, but it was a tourney sword, and he didn't see them coming, and he didn't. He would also not be worried about anything bad happening to him. He's kind of an arrogant guy, and he's sitting in the the Red Keep, where his sister is queen. Why would he be worried? The faith, he didn't probably wasn't even aware that the Faith Militant were a thing. He, he's like, who are these guys? He might have even recognized Lancel, and that might have slowed him down. So I would agree that if he had a chance to fight, he could have done some serious damage, but he was just so surprised. Uh, so let's see. We have a, a short section we'll, we'll call the Powerlessness of Tommen. And he kind of gets pulled in a lot of directions. He doesn't know what to do. He's, he's He stands up to his mother a little bit, but kind of gets rebuffed a little bit because she's kind of claims that she's powerless too. Now, I think this is a parallel to something going on in the Feast for Crows. An interesting quote referencing our favorite book cat, Sir Pounce. Sir Pounce caught a mouse, he told her, but Lady Whiskers stole it from him. I was never so sweet and innocent, Cersei thought. How can he ever hope to rule this cruel realm? The mother in her wanted only to protect him. The queen in her knew he must grow harder, or the Iron Throne was certain to devour him. Sir Pounce must learn to defend his rights, she told him. In this world, the weak are always the victims of the strong. So a running question we have, is Tommen weak? Is he lacking in cunning, or is it a little of both? I mean, he's young, he's inexperienced, but he's definitely naive as well. <laughs> yeah, you know, Cersei doing this to him makes a lot more sense since he's so much older and still kind of like childlike Tommen of the books in a lot of ways, and so he hasn't grown in cunning despite him being older, really. That's true. Um, this so, wouldn't even be an option in the books for her to put the ten-year-old to face down the High Sparrow. Yeah, and she, wouldn't, she wouldn't have done that to her little ten-year-old boy, but to her married, you know, however old, 16-year-old son. Already having sex. Yeah, already having sex. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel really bad for Tommen in that scene, though. He's uh, really looked helpless. Yeah. He really did. The actor's doing king. a good job. Yeah, he has the king. <laughs> he needs to walk around with his crown on. I'll give him a little more authority. Yeah. <laughs> so then Marjorie leaves. Uh, I guess that, that adds to Tommen's woes. But it's foreshadowing perhaps the return of Olena, the Queen of Thorns, which we're excited for. She's always great on screen. Mm-hmm. And with Mace gone and Loras in captivity, Marjorie might be fearing for her own safety a little bit here. This yeah. might not just be about, well, she says, I need to be with my family. But the reason she might not need to be with her family isn't just to, you know, make sure she continues to have sway over Tommen, but she might be a little worried for herself. What's what's coming next? If, if Loras is seized 
maybe she's next. Yeah. Uh, if I were her, I might worry about the same things. Yeah. I think it's also just I, I, she's got to teach Tommen as well. And maybe this is, I think Marjorie is, I, I think she is thinking of that as well. When she decided to leave him, I don't think she, I think she was thinking that that was the right play. Yeah, I think you're right. I think she thought it was the right play, and and for several reasons, and yeah. one of those was the to impact. Keep her power. I Tommen. mean, yeah. she can't show Tommen that if he doesn't do what she wants, she'll just stay with him and do what he wants. She has to show him that it hurt her and that he needs to do it. Yeah, I totally agree. Okay, so let's move on to Dorn. Dorn was uh, pretty interesting. Uh, maybe some aspects of it weren't so great. Some aspects were kind of cool, and a lot we just have to wait and see because we're still pretty early in the game here on the ship. This was very cool. We get to see Tarth as we're passing by. And Yokoi, you had some thoughts on that. Yeah, just seeing Tarth. I, I really like the fact that they had that. It was a nice surprise. And, of course, it's a reminder to Jamie of Brienne. And you see that kind of look in his eyes. And, yeah, we were reminded that she still means something to him on some level. You know, it's, it's, it's a, up to the viewers to decide kind of what level that is. But the the Sapphire Isles also reminds him of his last adventure. And here he is kind of setting sail on another one. You know, his last one, he kind of got his hand cut off and it, it was a very strange kind of journey. <laughs> right. And here he is going for a, going for adventure number two of the series. So, What limb will he lose this time? <laughs> <laughs> and later on, when Jamie and, and uh, Bronn are discussing... How would you like to die? Jamie mentions that he would die, prefer to die in the arms of the woman he loves. Doesn't say who that is. And maybe that'll be a certain woman from Tarth. <laughs> now, a little more on Brienne, a lot more on Brienne, rather, can be found on Radio Westford's coverage of Brienne, which is a really excellent episode. Uh, how? But how about Jamie's determination? How about determining, rather, where how his arc will lead based on what happens to him in his Riverlands arc. If there are any parallels to be drawn, we'd like to try to get at them. Lady Gwyn, you have some thoughts on that. I'm not sure about parallels yet, but, you know, the one thing that struck me is he was really determined here. You know, he kept saying, this has to be, it has to be me. And in the Riverlands, he was really determined to do the right thing. You know, he makes, he makes a big show about being Tywin's son, but he continually turns to advice from his other father figures, um, Arthur Dane and Sumner Craycall, Arthur Dane in particular, who obviously is someone who did the right thing. And and that Riverlands arc is very much about vows he made to Catelyn and Brienne. So it'll be interesting to see where they take that part of it here. Now, we also get two notice, notices that Bronn is aware of the incest, like a lot of people are by now, but of course it's it's one of those things that, that even if you know the secret, there's not necessarily a lot you can do with it. But I, I don't think that's going to end up mattering, but it is interesting to see that Bronn knows. Jamie also points out how he wants to kill Tyrion now, uh, though Tyrion still doesn't hate Jamie. In the books, they both are kind of poised to hate each other. We may, they may not need to come up with a reason for Tyrion to be mad with Jamie, or maybe they'll find some other way to spin that. I think there may have been a bit of an inside joke there. We have Jamie saying, Bronn asking for Tyrion to send him his regards, and Jamie says, I'd split him in two, then I'd send him my regards. And now we know that Jamie lost his regards line 
because Roos says the Lannisters send your regards at the Red Wedding. So a lot of people complained about that. And this could be a little nod to that. I couldn't help notice that line being so similar. Now, what about the other parallel here? Yoke Boy, you noticed something with regards to Tyrion. Well, it's just uh, the the obvious thing that we see Jamie and Tyrion both on boats, and I noted that Cersei's on a sinking ship. So, <laughs> all all uh, <laughs> all the um, Lannister siblings, and the, there is a nod to Tyrion's line. You know the the line that Bronn says about how he wants to die in, t- t- in the books. Tyrion's got this famous line in my own bed with a belly full of wine and a maiden's mouth around my cock <laughs> at the age of 80. So maybe maybe it was uh, Bronn's line was somewhat similar if you kind of compared them. Maybe a little nod. Bronn's line reminded me of Walder Frey. Yeah, <laughs> all his children and grandchildren squabbling over right. his fortune. <laughs> I didn't catch that. That's true. That's so true. Now, Lady Gwen, you noticed something about the captain of the ship. Well, like, you know, I, probably everybody noticed that Bronn called... Um, that the ship's captain was was going to betray them, which didn't work out very well for him. But it reminded me very much of the ship's captain who brought Catelyn to King's Landing in A Game of Thrones. His name was Morio Timidus. I believe he was a Bravosi. But, you know, she had no sooner stepped off that ship than she sold Cat. Uh, he sold her out to whoever, um, Varys or Littlefinger or both. So just made me a little nod, at least reminding us that really shouldn't trust in people like this <laughs> yeah now yeah. once we get ashore we've already gotten throughout these Braun and jamie scenes we've already we've already gotten lots of hints that Braun is not going to survive this journey so he is looking more and more like a very loose parallel to sir ari's Ocart. nothing in terms of honor yeah nothing in terms of honor nothing in terms of seduction seduction probably. but just yeah. a character that's going to dorn yeah. To yeah. die. <laughs> I loved the Jamie catching a sword in his golden hand. That was very unexpected and very funny, and I, I laughed a lot. I loved it, I, especially because I've long since thought about he could do something more useful, I right. feel like, with his right. hand. Like, he puts on a golden hand, like, attach a shield to your hand mm-hmm. or a sword or do something. I just, I've felt for so long that he should do something with it, and so they had him catch it, and that was awesome. <laughs> I was yelling at the screen. I was like, hit him with your hand! Hit him with your hand. I, I, I was hoping he would do something with it. It never occurred to me that he would do that, which is just way cooler than any, any, of, the, any of our suggestions. Yeah, it really, really catches him off guard. <laughs> the guy's like, what do I do? Yeah. They both are surprised by it so yeah. great comic relief. I hope we see him do it again yeah he's like that's my move that's my patented <laughs> move I gotta like in the show in the book it's 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 mentioned that the the hand is hooked so that he can hold a goblet you know and it's like well this is much better than holding right. a goblet <laughs> Jamie and Bronn scene of course their purpose is to rescue Marcella this is paralleled by the Sand Snakes and Ilari who are trying to get to Marcella first this scene, unfortunately, was weak. I think that we, pro- I think all of us agree on that. Yeah, do we all yeah. agree? Weak. Yeah, yeah. 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 It yes. seems the fandom yeah. seems to agree on that as well, which is very disappointing. We were uh, there's a lot of hope for the Sand Snakes. Some of my expectations were already lowered from <laughs> seeing the stuff in the pre before. You know, seeing the yeah. some of the shots, previews, the- cast photos, set photos mm. of the armor. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. To me, the scene just it felt forced, and uh, I think I hit on part of a lot of where the awkwardness came to me. It came from the introduction of all of them at once. 
and for Obara to be telling Alaria, and thus her sisters, this story. Whereas originally in the books, you know, Obara and the other two sand snakes that we meet are introduced but one by one, each lobbying with Doran, basically, to go to war. And so it just makes a lot of sense to me for that to be their introduction, because they're, like, lobbying. So for her to tell that story just made a lot of sense. And then there was this dichotomy between Doran's wish for peace and Obara's wish for war, and the other Sand Snake's wish for war, which is, this just just felt flat, whereas the other, the, the scenes that I'm comparing it to had a lot of depth and a lot of, like, ambiance to it, with, like, the oranges, the, the, the oranges falling, and just a lot of, like, little things that were just lacking. Lady Gwen, what did you think? My very succinct thought is that they now have all the subtlety of a sledgehammer. <laughs> It's not, they've gone from being this very sort of, very, not subtle, but they're sharp, and now they're just, uh, it's really a blunt instrument, in my opinion. <laughs> do, do, do we all think that they're a bit kind of too cartoonish? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They were like too, too cartoonish. The way they were yeah. dressed and all, it seems like the way over, like some sort of male fantasy of superhero, <laughs> women superhero costumes. Yeah. Yeah, it was... Yeah. Yeah, they, and they, to me, I think it was Elio Garcia of Westeros.org that he maybe put it into words, but so far, and again, I'm trying to be optimistic, we haven't really seen much of Nymeria and Tyene. They've been between two minutes, yeah, yeah. still talking. But he said that it seemed to him that it felt like they compressed the Sand Snakes into one character and then made them into three characters again, <laughs> which yeah. is still how I feel about it. Um, it does seem that way. So we'll, we'll see how it all plays out, but we're going to go into some immediate differences in their appearance, in their weapons, and just some some changes between them and we'll see how it all works out and so, the mystery of winkle pickers yes will which be revealed. We're, getting, we're getting up to that uh, so the most significantly different is obviously tyene they've made her alaria's daughter here in the show which obviously changes her significantly i don't really consider this to be tyene in the books i really wish they'd changed her name they have changed names before in the past, you know, for Talisa, for even Asha, who isn't really that much different. But there are, there's one immediate similarity, interestingly, to the book version that I noticed. She's described in the books as a child woman with her soft hands and little giggles. And this tiny does seem a little bit like a child woman to me at first glance. She's childish. She's like her, you know, the baby of the family out of the three sand snakes. She looks really different and she's adept with knives rather than poisons. I'm gonna guess she probably still uses poisons on her knives, though. Her knives were Nymeria's knives, originally, in the books. Uh, she hides her knives well hidden, though, which is very different from Tyene, just has her daggers, her snake daggers, well, you know, out on the open. Um, their clothes are also really different. Yeah, their clothing is is, is different. It's a little weird. It's, it's a little overdone. Snakes on everything, <laughs> straps, and... I don't know. It was a little silly. It's hard to describe exactly. It's just the whole the whole total picture isn't one particular thing that was awkward. It was just the it's a lot of different things. Yeah, Nymeria, I'm most hopeful for. I have to say, uh, she's we haven't seen much much of her. She looks the most like Nymeria in the books, as it happens. Um, despite uh, her change to uh, her mother is no longer a noblewoman from Volantis. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's mentioned who her mother is. Just, yeah, some just Eastern someone. culture. Yeah, <laughs> sure. But yeah, to go on to Obara and eventually the Winkle Pickers. <laughs> we have, we apparently, uh, we've seen photos, cast photos that show the Sand Snakes wear the same armor that Obara is wearing. They all wear it. But specifically, 
if you, I don't know if you noticed, but her nipple, her nipples, her <laughs> breastplate has nipples on it. I did not it. notice her nipples. Yeah. But her, the breastplates have nipples on it, which is very uh, funny <laughs> to me because there's a line in the books that's repeated at least four times, at least, unless I missed one. Um, as useless as nipples on a breastplate. <laughs> and yet her armor has nipples. Which is awkward. And at first, when the first photos came out, people were really making fun of it, obviously, because that's ridiculous to happen. And they said that it was a mistake and that it was too late to change the mistake. Uh, okay, whatever. I, I, it's a mistake. They feel bad. The, you know, the costumer probably, it sucks for them. But then I saw an interview in Vanity Fair with Obara, Keisha, Castle Hughes, and the interview said, one part of what makes her character so intimidating is her wardrobe. Obara and her sisters wear armadillo skin-like chest plates with nipples that give them seductive and alluring looks, which keep their enemies off guard. Obara wears her armor 24-7, Castle Hughes notes. She always wants to be ready for battle. As for the nipples, it's Game of Thrones. You still have to keep it sexy, she said. <laughs> Which, uh, I'm thinking it's a weird interpretation by Vanity Fair about, like, a throwaway comment that she made about it being, you have to keep it sexy and that it isn't actually for distraction. But it would be a little distracting, and it made me think that maybe nipples on a breastplate aren't so useless after all. They're kind of <laughs> like Jamie's golden hand surprise trick, you know? Yeah, they she really just thrust just, out her chest you know, and guys right. like gawks for a minute and says yeah. and, then, <laughs> and then she shoves her spear right through his gawking and then she, mouth and then she kicks yeah. him up the winkle with her winkle pickers so it is finally time to reveal the mystery of the winkle pickers <laughs> yoke, boy, yoke boy why don't you start us here yeah so who who else noticed the, the sand snake <sighs> shoes because all four of us all noticed this they are like Quite flat shoes with this quite preposterous <laughs> point. It's a strange curl. The point, yeah. you know, goes on. <laughs> yeah, really, really strange. You know, beyond where your toe is. If, you know, if you've got if you've got it on HBO, you go go and have a look at the shoes again. Because uh, we're talking about this, I realised that they're <laughs> they're called Winkle Pickers. And I introduced this concept to Aziz and Ash. They, they found it very funny. As you can tell, we still find it very funny. Um, so we actually, we actually did, yeah, we, we did some Winkle Picker research to see if HBO are just making, making up, you know, if there's any historical basis for using these kind of shoes. Do you want to say something, Lady Gwyn? Well, the historical basis for those long pointy-toed shoes goes back to medieval times. It's called a Poulain or a Krakow, and you, if you ever look at medieval mm. art, you've probably seen them, <laughs> you probably haven't, <laughs> but they're absolutely, they're unrealistic in terms of any athletic activity, although I did think maybe, I guess if you were going to just sit on a horseback, I, I don't know, because you could stick your feet into stirrups, but otherwise, they're, they're not the kind of shoe that you'd be wearing if you were doing, you know, outdoor activity, kind of walking in sand, um, in fact, in the medieval examples, You'd have to actually put a secondary shoe on over them in order to go out in the dirty medieval streets, some kind of a wooden clog or something, because they were just really made for indoors, a court shoe. So we were hoping that there was some reason for it, some sort of logical reason. Maybe there was some reason why it 
yeah, we thought maybe it helps in the desert or something yeah, like I that, mean, but no, it just seems to be, this is a way to look at look exotic or Middle Eastern. Yeah, I mean, there is, they are Arabian shoes, like, like Arabic shoes like that, kind of court jester shoes, it's a style, but that's like a style for, yeah, exactly, for being in, inside and in court. An indoor thing, not yes, for like when you're slipper. in your Not for when you're in your armor, out in the desert, <laughs> yeah. like ready right. for battle. It seems like, really, it would be really awkward for stirrups, like, you're just... <laughs> If it would get caught. But may- maybe they're a good weapon. Maybe <laughs> like the nipples. <laughs> We're going to see them as weapons. I pick my, my weapon of choice when I'm offered. I pick a sword, but other people pick a winkle picker. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, in the oh. books, Obara has both the whip and the spear. They, you know, obviously here she only has her spear. They gave the whip to Nymeria. Not really sure why they moved her all around except to give Tyene one of the weapons. They didn't want her to be weaponless, so they moved it all around. Obara gets one weapon. In the books, Obara is described as big boned, and it's not really a surprise that they changed that, but it is notable, I thought, that um, she's, you know, she's a small girl. She's a small woman in the show, Keisha Castle Hughes. She just is. I, I, she's, she was decent as Obara. Funny, I noticed one thing in the books that Obara is described as always walking too fast. <laughs> yeah, really. And she pushes his wheelchair too fast. Yeah, she's always too fast. Like, she always has, you know, some, something she has to do. And it's just funny because telling the story, she's specifically walking very slowly here, telling this story with steps. Step, <laughs> you know, I just, uh, it was very different. Um, but I hope we get the skull. I do too. Her kissing the skull. the skull. That would be cool. That would be a good, a good nod to the fandom there. If, yeah, if we get I'm that. hoping. I uh, also hope we get Arya and the skull as now, well. <laughs> we wanted to sit here and make a few predictions on the future of this plotline, but we are really pressed for time in this episode because we have so much to talk about. So we'll save those predictions for another time. But I will drop one teaser. Consider the possibility that instead of Marcella being injured, maybe she just gets outright killed. Think on that. See, and tell us what you think as far as that possibility. Think it through. In the meantime, we don't have since we don't have time to go through that in great detail, let's go all the way away from the desert and into the snow. Let's go to the wall. John and Sam talking about how they're desperate for men, fairly similar to the book situation. Uh, they're asking lords for more. Now this includes Bolton, which is a test for John. His vows are tested twice in rapid succession here in this scene. And he is, he sticks to it. He's, at first he's disgusted, decides he won't do it, but Sam talks him into it, pointing to how it's, a, it's an issue of their vows and how they're supposed to stay neutral. Now, just the idea of John sending a letter to Bolton makes me think of wh- what would happen in reply. A letter coming back from the Boltons brings us into maybe pink letter territory. <laughs> and watching her Shane O'Connell suggests that Roos could take over Cersei's plotline which was not really, didn't come to fruition in the books. But remember, Cersei wanted to send, I think, Osney Kettleblack to the Wall to kill Jon. Well, Roos has already sent a man to infiltrate the Wall to this point, not to kill Jon, but he did it once with Locke. Maybe he'll send more men with something else in mind. He could send them as, hey, I'm sending you soldiers, but really they're under orders to do something else. Roos is surely aware that Stannis is at the wall, and he can't be happy with that. So he's going to look, he's gonna, as suspicious as Roos is, he's probably going to think that Jon is not on his side, especially considering <laughs> that Jon is a Stark by birth. So mm-hmm. we wonder, listener, watchner Vincidius asks about the number of Night's Watch in the book versus show at this point, and I think that the 50 number that they quote is a number of fighters that are left. I think there's more than 50 men on the wall in total. That would be a bit much, especially after Jon suggests sending 10 or so to go with 
Janos Slint to Greyguard. So I, I don't think he would have sent 10 of 50 total men to an abandoned castle. That doesn't sound like uh, the right plan. So we'll have to see how that goes. It seems like there might be less men in, in, the, in the show than in the books, but we'll see if they handle that. It might put a more of an emphasis on the need for an integration with the Wildlings. Watchner Sophia Alarcon asks, or predicts rather, that John is going to die earlier in the season than we might have thought, so that we have time to see that he's not truly dead. Having that be a cliffhanger might be a bit much for the audience. We'll see. Good idea. Good concept. I think there's a chance for that. I still kind of lean towards it coming towards the end of the season, or near the end of the season, or perhaps the last thing. But I could definitely see why they might do it that way. Let's talk about Solis, Shireen, Stannis, and Melisandre. There's some interesting commentary on Jon Snow's mother. Now, for book readers, we all, we all know where that's headed. For, for show watchers, that was probably a bolt from the blue. But now, but of more interest, perhaps, to us is the queer talk about Shireen and her blood and how the, how the Lord Light doesn't care about her scars. That could lead to some sort of sacrifice, which we've kind of been predicting for a little while. And the books seem to hint at something like that. Now, as far as Stannis bringing Melisandre on campaign, that's another thing that comes out of this scene. That's very different from the books. Even though we have seen in the books that Melisandre points out that Stannis had learned from his mistake by not bringing her on the black, uh, bringing her on the Blackwater. Yet he still doesn't bring her on campaign here in the North. So, Yoke Boy, some thoughts on Mel's A Dance with Dragons story in general. Right, okay. Mel's Dance with Dragons story is really propelled by visions, I would say. Give him just one example. There's the grey girl. Uh, she also tells John that wildlings are going to attack Eastwatch again after a vision. You do have the glamour on Mance, who's obviously not in the show anymore. And kind of more warnings to John. So, yeah, and this is in a book where she even gets a POV. It's still very visiony. You know, it's, it doesn't translate to the show is what I'm trying to say. They, they're not big on visions and stuff. I don't think they've done the kind of prophetic stuff. I don't think they, they deal with it very well. And I think they know that. So I think if she goes with Stannis, you, you're not losing... A whole, a whole lot. I, I think it might actually be a smart solution for the show to do that. Yeah. So we don't, you don't think there'll be an Azor Ahai at all on the show? No, that's another thing. You get hints in the books that she's about to kind of start considering if John is Azor Ahai. She looks for Azor Ahai, and all she sees is snow, and it's got a an uppercase S. That's a lot of people know, know that one. So uh, it, I don't know. I don't know. If they're going to have Azor Ahai in the show, I know that Azor Ahai has actually been mentioned in. I remember as early as season two, you saw Melm kind of making prophecies by the by the pyre uh, on Dragonstone. Yeah. But I, I don't know if they're even going to have an Azor Ahai. That they might just think it's better just to just to not have it again. I think they struggle to present the kind of otherworldly aspects like prophecies and visions uh, and memories even they, they seem like they don't want to go there so there you go maybe Noah's or a high yeah so we also have Stannis and Shireen this is I thought this was a really important scene it's not particularly the, the Stannis we are used to from the books but the Stannis from the books is already long gone the show they've played this character a lot differently and a little bit too flat so I was very happy to see them expand and give him some depth give him some more likability which it's not the book 
type of likability that we have for him, but it's something. So I was happy to see them at least somewhat make up for his lack of depth. It seems like they also repaired Jon Snow in a similar way. I've seen some talk about that, how he, he was kind of not handled properly and how they're starting to do it better. They're starting to run this character better. Now, Lady Gwen, you noticed something interesting in the background of this scene with Stannis and Shireen. Well, Shireen uh, walks in the room and she goes right over to a table. There's a table, uh, there's some scrolls on the table and what looks like maybe a pile of rocks and she picks one up and starts playing with it. And so I wondered, could that be Obsidian? Because book readers will know that Obsidian plays a big part in the books and Stannis is noted to have sent to Dragonstone for Obsidian. So this seemed kind of like it had gold flecks in it, but possible that they were going to, you know, play on that. Yeah, we looked at the screenshot, didn't we? We looked at the screenshot. It did seem black, but like you say, it did seem kind of a bit flecked with gold, perhaps. So uh, this this is right before she picks up the, the Bolton pieces. It's the first table, just in case any of your watchers want to go and grab the screenshot. It's the first table. Okay. Now, this is a good place to point out that Obsidian in Song of Ice and Fire is different than Real World Obsidian. George has specifically pointed that out, and there's clues that give that away as well. There's the fact that Obsidian comes in several different colors rather than just black, which I don't think is a real world feature of it. So maybe the gold flecks are part of that, <laughs> or maybe it's, you know, gold and black rock. To me, that's, what is that? That's Kraken Rock, right? That's uh, a Greyjoy yeah. rock. Yeah, <laughs> Greyjoy rock. <laughs> Speaking of gray, there is also more grayscale talk in this scene, which marks a theme of quite a bit of grayscale talk. Mm-hmm. It's really just, you can't, if you, it's impossible to miss by this point. It's been brought up so many times. Yeah. yeah. And we also learn that it can be passed differently. This is kind of, I guess this might be news to us, Lady Gwen. Is this, is there anything like that in the books about it coming through like a doll like that? I never heard that in the books, I don't recall, but grayscale being passed along in objects or in clothing is very much like something that happens in, or not anymore, but has happened in real life. Smallpox um, was passed along in clothing and objects and was in fact used as a weapon. How about that? Mm-hmm. So it just made me wonder. Another a crazy uh, weapon. That yeah, that's gross. <laughs> if someone did that with grayscale, just a ship. I, just watch out. If we see, if we have a scene at the end of an episode where we're like, "What the heck is this? It's a ship load arriving," and then there's just a bunch of dolls in just it, just a bunch of creepy dolls. <laughs> Better watch out. Better watch, watch out, out folks. <laughs> I, I feel bad for those dock workers in particular. Hmm. But the other bombshell that has a, a immediate domino effect is Stannis casually dropping the the line that the stone men live in the doomed ruins of Valyria, which is very different from where they are in the books. Not in a fundamental way. I mean, it's not a huge difference as far as the plot goes, but it immediately tells us what's happening because we know the sorrows are where John Connington got grayscale, where Tyrion falls into the water. Well, guess that'll be Jorah now. Looks like Jorah and Tyrion are heading straight to the sorrows. The show's version of the sorrows is in Valyria, and they're going from Valyria to Slaver's Bay. You go right around Valyria. So yeah. there's really no way of 
avoiding that. I think you know, there is one kind of it's kind of interesting difference actually for it being um, Valyria. It doesn't really matter to most people, but to kind of history fans like us, I guess it's kind of interesting that the sorrows are the ru- the ruins of the Roinar. You know, and like perhaps that was the Roinar curse that like started this as a theory that it's related to that. Is it like the ruins of Croyane, and it's the ruins of Valyria instead. And the Valyrians mm-hmm. were, uh, <laughs> you know, at the downfall of the Roinar. That's kind of neat. Yeah. And instead, uh, the, the Roinar curse is at Valyria. A little more about this. That's, yeah, that's a great idea. A little more about this when we talk about Jorah and Tyrion, and yeah. a little more about other places Grayscale could pop up later in the show. There's actually, we've actually got several ideas of where it could come up. Melisandre and John. here comes the other major test of John's vows and his sense of duty. We have this whole duty versus love theme, which is a big thing in the books. I, I guess they get a, they give a nod to it here where John uses both as his reasoning for why he has to turn down Melisandre. It's not just his duty, it's also the fact that he loves Ygritte. So they kind of combine those notions there. I thought that was cool. Uh, we're reminded some important lines from the books were recreated in this scene. She talks about is her life versus death, power to cast shadows speech, which is really important. We wonder if Melisandre's going to send some shadows out in, in the books. I suppose that could have something to do with sending shadows after the Boltons even. I don't know. That, that's a different... I hadn't thought about that in book terms, but in the show, that might that make more, more sense. Then we have the bombshell line that I think a lot of us expected to come from Melisandre because it happens in the books, but at that particular moment, it was, whoa there, you know nothing, Jon Snow. Yoke Boy, you had some thoughts on that. Yeah, this is from Jon's first chapter in Dance. First, Mel warns Jon about his enemies, and he, he's... Says he kind of knows who they are. Said, you know, don't bother telling me. I already know. And then we get the daggers in the dark line, which is, of course, you know, quite famous for where that one leads. And then she warns him to keep his wolf beside him. And that her vision was very cold. And then he responds, you know, it's always cold on the wall. And she says, you think so? I know so, my lady. Then you know nothing, Jon Snow. And then she whispers. So it's it's uh, really kind of poetic. Uh, of course, at the end of Dance, he doesn't keep Ghost beside him like Mel warned. He gets stabbed by the daggers in the dark. And so this was a kind of the first very early hint in Dance at his, face, uh, his fate in the very first of his chapters. And anyway, it was a really creepy ending to his first uh, dance chapter with Mel taking Egret's line from out of nowhere and I, I thought they, I thought it really worked on the show again like you said because we were expe- expecting it before or somewhere else and it, it caught everyone even book readers didn't quite see it coming but it was there and it was delivered very well by Carice who I think plays Melisandre very well yeah I, I was I, I definitely just jumped <laughs> I was like hey and then I and I uh, it, it struck me that I was surprised by something that I kind of knew was coming. So that that I definitely give them a lot of credit for, for pulling that off well. And the other thing that happens in the books that goes along these lines is John, which I think was funny because when at the, when the scene starts, John says, "What what by? I don't want to look into any flames." And she says, "Oh, there's no magic, nothing going on here, no magic." And in the books, of course, she bewitches she bewitches ghosts somehow and gets ghosts to behave differently, and it's like. You're definitely using magic there, I mean, I, I think. Now, another very subtle thing brought up in this scene is 
Melisandre, again, like we talked about last episode, Melisandre is again trying to encourage Jon to join the war effort against the Boltons, which again makes me suspicious about the pink letter and the idea that maybe Stannis or Melisandre could have somehow written it. I, I considered that idea to be possible, but kind of on the crackpot side before. The show is making me rethink that a little bit. And But the other thing that's mentioned is that she points out that Jon has knowledge of the castle, of the secret tunnels, things that Theon also knows that Theon's role is of that in the book. Seems like Theon's going to be the one to do those things. So that is very curious. Now, a quick note: you can. One thing that I've done a lot to prepare for the show episodes is, like I said, as we restudied the books a lot, I list, re-listened to, in particular, A Feast for Crows. I listened to A Dance for Dragons as well, but I've really been keyed in on Feast for Crows because of the High Sparrow scenes and Littlefinger stuff, some stuff with the Faceless Men. And a great way to review that while you're doing other things, way to combine your chores and your exercise with A Song of Ice and Fire, go to historyofwesteros.com and click <laughs> on the audible.com link. Sign up for a free 30-day trial. Use your one free download that they give you as part of that to download A Feast for Crows or a Dance with Dragons, and you'll be right there with us. And you'll also be supporting the show along the way. Let's move on to the Winterfell Crypts, a place we haven't been to since, I suppose, season one. A place we might not have thought we'd ever come back to on the show. A place that we get to see in the books in A Dance with Dragon through Theon's point of view as well. We get Sansa and Littlefinger with the feather the feather deal with Sansa there, which is a reference to a straight shot away from season one, episode one. Robert Baratheon puts that feather there and laments Lyanna's death. I wouldn't have guessed, by the way, <laughs> that Littlefinger, of all people, uh-huh. would be the one to give the Tournament of Harrenhal story. If you told me that before the show started, I'd be like... How on earth? Why would Littlefinger be the one to tell? Of course, he also tells the hounds. Wow, story, right. So I wouldn't have predicted that either. <laughs> so Lady Gwen, gossip. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lady Gwen, tell us some of your thoughts on why this scene was done the way it was versus how it was carried out in the books. Well, you know, they really, first of all, they really couldn't have had Ned deliver that information as he did in the books because it was, it was internal. It was a dream. There was no one there to hear it. And it was way too long ago. No one would remember it. I mean, they, they would have just had to bring it up all over again. So definitely understand why they did it, you know, and uh, I think it was well done. Ned probably wouldn't have wanted to tell anybody, but they'd have, they'd have to explain mm-hmm. why he's talking about exactly. it. Exactly. It just would have been way too complicated. So, so um, the other thing that, you know, this scene proves to us or shows to us is that Littlefinger has a plan after all, something I think a lot of people were wondering after last week. Um, he has a plan, and it involves um, Stannis, you know, and uh, Stannis here, or Littlefinger, rather, might, he starts to seem like he's the stand-in for the Great Northern Conspiracy, if you follow that theory at all. Um, the basic idea behind it is that the Northern Lords plan to use Stannis to bring about the downfall of the Boltons. So here's Littlefinger, and this seems to me like that's exactly what he's trying to orchestrate. Um, and I find it interesting that he says he's a betting man, so he's going to bet on Stannis, who he notes is going to King's Landing, which is exactly where he's going. So Very interesting. <laughs> on the other hand, Littlefinger appears to have completely misjudged Ramsay Bolton. Yes, or at least perhaps not fully account- accounted for right. the possibilities right. therein. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, Yoke Boy, your assessment of Littlefinger was right on. Uh, he spells out 
is for, I guess this would have been, I think we talked about it last episode, I'm not sure. He spells out his outsider status at the, at the envy and longing he felt at Harrenhal, right? If he loved Catelyn, he would want, he would envy Ned and Winterfell and all that. So that's coming to pass, like just like you said. Yeah, I said Sansa, the combination of Sansa and Winterfell under his thumb would be his wet dream. That's right. (laughs) uh, It does seem seem like something like that. So let's talk about a little bit about the potential here. It's it's really, this this plotline makes people a little bit nervous. I hope that they don't do anything too crazy, too brutal here, but we'll just have to wait and see. We can try to at least treat it as lighthearted as possible in the meantime. San Ram? What do we do? Ram San? San Say? What is this couple called? San Say. Don't like Ram San. San. I'm just going to say Ram San is too dirty. San Say. Some listeners have asked how it's even possible. San Say. How it's even possible for Sansa to remarry. That's a good question. An annul- There's the annulment on the grounds of non-consummation. That's one argument that has and in the show they seem to be playing it off as though you're just your marriage is annulled which i'm not sure if in the show that's just the truth or some weird misconception or and there's there are there's the potential for the wrong gods being invoked this is a marriage of northerners you know there it was a sansa was was married in front of the five to seven this is that that's a possible argument they can make for why it's invalid now in the books it's a bit different Sansa at one point thinks to herself, no man can wed me so long as my dwarf husband still lives somewhere in this world. Littlefinger's attitude seems to be a little different, but he still tells her that, yeah, maybe Sansa can't marry, but Elaine can marry whoever she wants. So uh, the point there being Elaine is not married to Tyrion or anyone at that matter. So now, Yokeboy, you had some other thoughts on the whole concept of marriage here, that it might not go the way we're thinking. Well, just to tie in with what you've been say, saying about, you know, the annulment possibilities and stuff, there was that line, next time you see me, I, I expect I'll be married. And Littlefinger, did you see a little kind of smirk on his face, a little cheeky, a little cheeky look, <laughs> like, no... And I, I think that Sansa's <laughs> first move in her game will be to at least prolong the marriage to Ramsay. And I think you kind of touched on how she might actually do that. But yeah, I think now she's Sansa's playing and this will be her first first little move to prolong this marriage with Ramsay. So, you know, really, so it doesn't happen, but prolong it enough long enough for Stannis to come and take Winterfell. Right, so he, she can say, I'm not, I can't marry until we have an annulment. That's just, yeah. you know, it's the gods, etc. It's not my, uh, it's not my fault. So it could be <laughs> a, just a delaying, te- a delaying tactic, you know? <laughs> right. That's a good one. Watching her recon Seattle asks, will Sansa take on some of Lady Stoneheart's role? That's an interesting question. That harkens back to what I was saying at the beginning of this episode about looking for opportunities to existing characters to take on some of the roles of cut characters. And well, one of the things Lady Stoneheart's doing is killing off a lot of Freys. Well, there's no Freys except for one here at Winterfell, but there are Boltons. And we already know that part of the Jane Poole, Theon, Winterfell plot involves people being killed in the night. Mysterious murders committed by, probably by Mance's washerwomen, but not all of them. And possibly engineered in part by Wyman Manderley. So we could see a little bit of... We could also see Sansa Manderley. Sansa Manderley, yeah. Sanserly. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes. So they're <laughs> making some pies with the help of some serving women. No. That, yeah, we could but, see we could see some pie action. We could see you know we talked about last episode how Lady Walda makes a lot of pies. Yeah. They make a lot of pies out of her. Or how about Ramsay eating Roos? I don't know. That something funny like that could happen. I actually talked about uh, the Sansa Manderly, the idea of her taking that revenge concept because obviously Manderly's a little closer to Winter, you know, to Winterfell than Lady Stoneheart is. Although the Lady Stoneheart comparison would be somewhat apt as well. But I was talking about it with Geek Furious, um, who also suggests that Littlefinger could tell Cersei that the Sansa that he gave, you know, Roos and Ramsay isn't real. Which would make a lot of sense. It's, that would be awesome. I hope that he does say that because it's like a really cool nod to you know Jane Poole. He could even say her name. Her real name is Jane Poole. Yeah, yeah, he <laughs> could say anything. Yeah, he could. They could make it an actual nod to that. He could say it's just some girl from one of my brothels. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He could say that. Uh, he could just easily lie to her, and Cersei is always lied to in a feast for crows. <laughs> So it's also a nod to that. Yeah, well, that would that would be a really cool way for them to yeah. bring dial back into the book plot. Say, hey, look, we this, you know we, we're we're still keeping this in mind. Yeah, well, no matter what, Littlefinger, I think, is going to be lying to Cersei when it gets there. Like we're <laughs> that's, going that's to see him blatantly lying to her and other people. Probably that is the, a prediction <laughs> that is not at all going out on a limb. <laughs> now, so uh, one thing we touched on briefly, Lady Gwen, you mentioned this as well. That Littlefinger's plan starts to make a lot more sense. It seems less reckless than it was. It's still a gamble. It still could go wrong. But it's not just some crazy, you know, put Santa out there, risky maneuver. It's, it's starting to take more shape. And there may still be an angle to it we haven't figured out. It may make even more sense later. It might make less sense later as well. But I'm glad it's making more sense. It was a little awkward before, so it's good that they tied that up. Now, R plus L equals J. Good timing for them bringing this up. They did it in a, in a cool way. It's, it's handled in a bunch of different scenes. We get different accounts of Rhaegar. Lady Gwen, take us through some of that. Okay, well, you know, this was so well done. It's all presented exactly in the sequence that it's delivered in the books. Only, of course, it's greatly compressed into this one episode. We start with, you know, the, the Stannis comment about Ned. You know, this he says, this the it's not Ned Stark's way to father a bastard on a tavern slut, I think is what Solis said. That basically takes us through a ton of the Ned character development in Game of Thrones with people talking about how Ned refused to speak of John's mother, John being sure that his mother was highborn, and, you know, this stuff like that. Even going to the part for the first time in years... Um, when he's coming out of Littlefinger's brothel and he thinks about Rhaegar and how he was pretty sure he probably didn't frequent brothel, brothels, indicates that probably Ned wouldn't either. So um, that's sort of his definition of honor. And then moving from that, you have the Littlefinger delivering the story of the turning of Harrenhal. That's taken all directly, almost word for word, right from, um, except for adding his point of view, from Ned's fever dream in the Black Cells, including the bit about the winter roses, blue as frost. And then um, Sansa has this line about Rhaegar being a rapist. That's That right there is taken directly from a Bran point of view, where he's down in the crypts with Osha, and he says that Robert was betrothed to Mary Lyanna, but Prince Rhaegar carried her off and raped her. So, so Bran, Bran had been listening in on, on uh, Bobby B, hadn't he? That's, th- this is what I think in the books. That I don't know, you know, this is kind of a mystery how Bran ever heard this story, because obviously Ned never heard it. 
I never spoke about it. So I suspect that Bran was maybe spying on Ned and Robert when they were in the crypts in that very first scene because Robert is the one who said, you know, he was a rapist, said it. So, um, so setting Rhaegar, so you go from Ned wouldn't father bastards to this thing about Rhaegar and Lyanna to this Rhaegar is a rapist to Paristan saying, no, no, Rhaegar was a nice guy. He's not a rapist. He loved singing and, you know, he didn't like killing people and he gave money to charity and, um... So it follows along that right there with some um, of the Barristan info that he gives Danny in A Storm of Swords about her brother. So really well done. I didn't ever expect to be so impressed with the way they handled this subject. Yeah, it, I agree. I was kind of dreading the way they bring it up. I wasn't sure they'd be able to do it well. I was very surprised with how well they did it. Not because they haven't done things well before, but because it seems like it would have been hard. It seems like it would be hard for them yes, to do. exactly. And, you know, whenever something it's with such a big challenge, it's hard to, to have a lot of confidence. But good job, guys. They did it. They did it well. So unless we have more thoughts on R plus L equals J. I have a thought on Barrison's story. Okay. And I saw a really funny uh, kind of joke about it. Which is, you know, Barrison tells her, he goes, he went out there and sang in the streets all the time. <laughs> like, I remember Daenerys' reaction is being like, I thought you said people liked him. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, anyway. <laughs> well, no, he sang well. <laughs> he's, like, he's out there just singing really horribly. <laughs> it's like, someone tell this prince that he can't sing. <laughs> They're giving him money to be quiet. <laughs> Everyone, beca- because he's a prince, no one will tell him he's doing it badly. And no one wants to tell him to his face that he's a horrible singer. <laughs> so let's go to Essos. Let's talk about Tyrion and Jorah. We touched on them briefly before. It seems, like we said, it seems very likely Jorah will be not only falling into the water like Connington is saving Tyrion from Grayscale, but he perhaps will take Connington's role as being patient zero in Westeros. Which says a lot about Jorah's arc. It says that he will survive Marine, perhaps be brought back into Danny's good graces. Maybe mm-hmm. he will do or, something. Or it means that Patient Zero, that the, there's going to be the Grayscale outbreak in Marine, and they're going to combine the idea of the Pale Mare with Grayscale and have it happen there. Absolutely. Yeah. Justin Wynn, Watchner's Justin Wynn and Matt Brown made that exact suggestion. Oh, I see. Yes, of it's course. Very good. Yes. I think that's a very good catch. We could have Grayscale starting in Marine Uh and then moving to Westeros rather than having two separate diseases. Yes. That is right along the lines of what the show does. Rather than confusing viewers with two different types of diseases, they just do the one. The conservation (laughs) of diseases. (laughs) (laughs) Law of conservation of diseases. (laughs) Yes. In full effect here, we have that. So (laughs) the good news there is, if you recall from our previous predictions, I was very worried not only that Varus would die, but that Varus would have would be the one to catch Grayscale and bring it to to Winterfell to Winterfell to Westeros. So I don't think that is a problem at all anymore. So what about Lady Gwen? You had some thoughts in the scene as well. It was part of the theme of this episode to have exposition and explanations. Yes. Why is Tyrion smart? <laughs> he figured out Jorah's entire story based on you know just recognizing his dragon epaulets and the and the bear yeah, his armor. The little he's like thing, bear, bear dragon, dragon. Oh, i know yeah. what happened to you and he spelled the whole thing out oh it, plus being you know sitting through a couple of small council meetings apparently but yeah yeah there's a there's a little yeah. that too yeah it all clicked <laughs> for him you know he's like oh bear a sigil in essos oh obviously this is Dora Mormont everybody knows <laughs> and this is obviously what happened <laughs> she kicked uh-huh. you out so 
So let's move a little. Let's move e- further east, as Tyrion said so succinctly in that uh, in that uh, in the episode. <laughs> I thought we were going west to Westeros, which is west. <laughs> we're going east. I don't know if I'm pointing in the right directions here. Oh. But neither do you guys. You don't know which way our studio faces. So now we head over to Essos itself, or to Marine itself, rather. Hisdar and Danny. We have more foreshadowing of the fighting pits. This, this idea has been talked about just about every episode. Well, I guess the one episode Danny wasn't in, it wasn't talked about. Okay. But of the four episodes of the season, the fighting pits have been brought up, I believe, three times. Looks like Jorah will be in there fighting with the, in the pits. Maybe he'll be, yeah. you know... His pit name will be Dr. Grayscale. Mm, yeah. <laughs> he'll just be... <laughs> he'll be fighting people with his grayscale. His fast-acting grayscale. Uh-huh. His, his opponents will turn to stone in front of him. Mm, that's his That's his golden hand surprise. Nipples on a breastplate move. Grayscale. Sir Basilisk. Mm. Yes. <laughs> Sir Medusa. <laughs> but there's interesting talk about the traditions and how the fighting pits are more than just sport. Uh, Yoke Boy, why don't you take us through that a bit? Yeah, it wasn't the line from Hizda as he's... Asking for the 2,000th time to open the fighting pits. Tradition is the only thing holding this city together. And the the scene, I don't know if you noticed, but it was kind of inter-spliced with the, the um, harpies starting to run riot. So it's really setting up the marriage now. It's like Danny is got this choice and uh, I think we'll see in maybe maybe the next episode or the one after pretty soon we're going to see something twig in Danny's head where she thinks this is the solution and you know I've got to marry this dude even though he's <laughs> you know, pretty boring <laughs> he's not as cool he's not as cool as Dario you know I don't really want to do this but so I think we'll see something in Danny where she realizes that you know she she's she doesn't do this she's going to be in some serious trouble with her regime and and herself they're going to be in serious trouble yeah because she's she's upset not just the ex-slave masters obviously but she's upset the population with with the masador thing so she's got a lot of amends to make and she's running out of of advisors and counselors isn't she we we have this like you like you said the sons of the harpy doing their thing was interposed over this discussion just like some of the faith militant was interposed with the Cersei and High Sparrow discussion. So that was a, a reuse of that device that I thought was very, very well done. Now, a few clarifications here. Who are the Sons of the Harpy? The, the show has taken a few liberties here, so we can't be sure. I'm not 100% sure of this. We're, we're shown a Son of the Harpy early on who seems to be just a regular guy. Uh, but... My impression more is that the Sons of the Harpy are mostly sons of the nobility, sons of members of the great families that were displaced by Danny's conquest, ex-slaveholding families, in other words, ex-slave master families. And when you're a, a child, especially a male child in a world like this of nobility, you're trained to fight from an early age. Fighting is part of what you're, is part of your upbringing. So these guys aren't just... I saw some complaints that maybe the Unsullied should have made better account of themselves... And I kind of agree with that, but on the other hand, there is this aspect where these, these guys should be better fighters than just random, you know, street thugs. So I do, I do think the scene had some realism issues, but it also has a very interesting, it also does a great job of highlighting something that Dario brought up earlier, which is also reflected in the show, or in the books, rather, which is that the Unsullied are great soldiers, but they're bad police. They're not 
cunning. They don't understand the human mind. The, 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 they don't understand the mindset of a skulking thief or a, a guy who hides in the shadows. They understand battlefields and fighting in, in, in rows and things like that. So I don't think that Daria's men, for example, would have fallen into that ambush. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to me that they had Dario stay and guard Daenerys there. It, it would have been so much better for them to switch spots. I mean, yeah. they wanted this to happen to Barristan, so they wrote it like that. But really, it makes more sense for, to me for Barristan to always be protecting Daenerys, for Dario to go out scouting yeah. and stuff. Yeah, you're right. That's that's why Danny needs more advisors. Apparently, she needs yeah. you as one of her advisors. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was, I, you know, it's kind of because he's talking about going out on the streets with Rhaegar, and so he's he's going out patrolling, kind of, and it's you know inspired by that conversation was what I gathered from it, I guess. Yeah, so that's a good point, Lady Gwen. You you had some thoughts as well on some of these differences between the Unsullied and the way they're portrayed, and the way they are, what their you know their their perspective, what their job is, and what they're good at, and not so good at. Yeah, well, it's just Barristan says something in the book which which pretty much illuminates this what the unsullied are he says they're soldiers not warriors if it please your grace they were made for the battlefield to stand shoulder to shoulder behind their shields with their spears thrust out before them their training teaches them to obey fearlessly perfectly without thought or hesitation not to unravel secrets or ask questions yeah now that said despite the fact the unsullied were out of their element that they're not necessarily in fighting in the way they're used to. Maybe they could have lined up more. I would have liked to see them try to make some sort of shield wall, even though there was only six of them. I said that. Yeah, I wish that there had been some sort of a you know back-to-back mm-hmm. shield walls. I thought they could have. But but they, despite that, despite the maybe that they missed some missed opportunities there with the choreography or the scene setup, the Unsullied still acquitted themselves well. It was like a 20, 25 on six. And at the end of it, even though Barrison comes in and it's, he kills like seven guys by himself before finally getting killed, every son of the harpy that was in that scene died. The only one that seems to be getting out of there alive is Grey Worm. So it's not as if the Unsullied were just got their asses kicked. Everyone Everyone died, <laughs> except for Grey Worm, mm-hmm. <laughs> apparently. So here's an interesting, subtle thing from the books. Grey Worm yells out in pain. Now, somebody pointed out that the Unsullied aren't supposed to cry out in pain, are they? They're, they're, aren't they immune to pain? Not so fast. Yoke Boy, go ahead and explain that for us. Okay, so in the books, uh, you know, a large reason why they're supposed to not feel any pain is because they, when they're in Astapor and they're training and, you know, they're waiting to go off to be bought, they drink the wine of courage and they're supposed to carry on drinking this. This slowly, you know, takes any pain away. They drink it, I think they might start drinking it after they're cut, but they're supposed to keep on drinking it. And I get the impression that you, it's not just physical pain that stops. I think it, you know, dehumanizes them. Um, I, I I remember reading that the ingredients for wine of courage are very hard to get hold of. One of the ingredients is blood fly larvae, larvae it says in the books. So you imagine that, you know, it's quite hard to make this stuff. You've got to know what you're doing. In short, I don't think Danny is giving her and Sully the wine of courage that they're kind of supposed to have to maintain their machine-like, uh, you know, anti-pain and machine-like uh, mentality. And and then in Marine, we get the unsullied lying with prostitutes because they, they need comfort. I think this is because they're not drinking the wine of courage. It, they're becoming human 
is my point. Danny is not supplying them with this kind of magic juice that makes them unsullied in the books. That's really interesting. I wonder what impact that could have in the books as as it goes forward. It could be that you're right. They could be becoming more human over time. She as she by the time she gets to Westeros, they could start to be changing, evolving a little bit. They could they could start different. to be scared. They could be susceptible to to things cold. Yeah, they could be susceptible things to the things they're not supposed to be susceptible to. That would be really interesting. I never really thought about the, their lack of fear face down with something supernatural. We've they're you know they're trained to not have this fear and to to stand in discipline. But how is that going to maintain in the face of say an army of whites or white walkers? I wonder if they can. I wonder if they can still hack it under those circumstances. That'll be very interesting to see. I never thought about really far ahead things like that. I'm thinking about like the Dothraki fighting the the others and. Yeah. <laughs> All sorts of... They just need a lot of the wine of courage for every person there. (laughs) It'll keep them warm because it's wine, too. Or they need to give the wine of cowardice to all the the whites. (laughs) 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 The wine of cowardice. Mm. We've already... Apparently, according to the show earlier, wine gives all men courage. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Sansa and Littlefinger scene. That's funny. All wine is the wine of courage. (laughs) You know, one interesting thing I thought was about uh, Littlefinger... I mean... Barristan's death scene is that he's you know he doesn't have his throat slit which was kind of an odd thing to me at first for them to like save Barristan who is clearly doomed and it feels like he should just be dead when Daenerys sees him anyways my first thought was that maybe Barristan would have some final words and that's why they didn't cut his throat but my second thought was that in the preview for next week we see him like laying there in state and the, the the slit throat would make for a gruesome scene for Daenerys to like say goodbye to, <laughs> and, and a, for the special effects that you know the, the makeup and everything. It's just easier to save him from having his throat slit, and, right. and of course they're going to want to make sure he's dead, so they had to cover that. And I'm pretty sure that that's just it. And he has no last words. That's my thought. <laughs> I, I, I I struggle to think what. He could possibly get out in one sentence or yeah, two. Yeah, exactly. Anyways. Yeah, it's true. That's why I was like, that can't be right. And so then when I saw the preview, I was like, oh, it would have been too gruesome. And he could say <laughs> something like Jon Snow, but what would why? I mean, that, why would would, that would be bizarre. weird. Yeah, it would be bizarre. bizarre. I think Barristan's last words were whooping everyone's ass. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely went out like a badass. He <sighs> took on about it was like I said, I think it was about eight on one, and they were having so much trouble with it. It was only because there were so many of them, and he can't. He doesn't have eyes in the back of his head. You know, that's that's just the way it is. He, he went out a hero, and it was very sad. It's got a lot of people upset. Hopefully it doesn't foreshadow his an early death for him in the books. In the I, fire, yeah. I don't know. We just we just have to wait and see. I think Barristan is going to still have... I, I don't know. I, I don't know if he'll die in the Battle of Fire. What do you guys think? You think that he might die in the Battle of Fire? I, f- I think... Uh, we- well, I think that he he will be right for a while. Actually, I don't think he's one that's going to last that long. But um, we think there's some of his arc to come. You know. Yeah, he's not done yet. <laughs> so, what about his ram? What about the ramifications of his death in terms of Danny's plot and her, you know, her arc and her outlook in Marine? One thing it really shows even more that she's in need of of new counsel, and so her need for Tyrion and Orvaris, and maybe a new trustworthy strong arm like Jorah is now called for again. 
Now, what do we think about Grey Worm? Do we think he's going to survive? What do you yeah, think I think he's going to survive and that he's going to be sick, or not, like, wounded for a, at least a little while, and Missande will be taking care of him, and we'll get scenes with them bringing them closer together. Oh, I think crazy. that specifically because we, in the trailer we saw a shot... We saw a shot of Masande like leaned over Grey Worm's body, and either he's dead there, she's saying goodbye, or he there's like that's like a th- thing in this season is Masande taking care of him. I, I think he's gonna survive though. We're gonna see a nurse. Yeah, I think so. I do. Uh, romance, but... <laughs> romance in the hospital. I think so too. But I have to say, I watched with an unsullied who pointed out that that scene just what, like you just said he was lying prone in the scene so you know yeah yeah not necessarily it's true. It's true. He, he was very concerned um about yeah. gray worm it might just be a very a very sad masande scene with her saying goodbye to gray worm they never had anything happen between them mm-hmm. yeah that, that could just be it it's <laughs> true i i definitely don't think i, I think it's about about 50-50 for me that, that he'll survive. Yeah. I just don't think they're going to want to in- introduce another unsullied right. captain is my main thought. Yeah. yeah. I agree. So. There's no more colors or insects left to use. <laughs> yeah. No more. Well, I, I think Scorpion. that, you, you know, in, in a way, the job of Baristan to perhaps advise Danny and stuff like that can be passed on to Tyrion. So in a sense, I see Barristan, I see why they think he's disposable. Now Tyrion's coming along. He can give backstory from things he's read. He's got wisdom from stuff he's, you know, he's read in books. He, he can figure things out for Danny. Whereas Grey Worm isn't really disposable. They just have to get another actor in. It would be a bit pointless. <laughs> yeah. So also, the other thing that Danny loses with, with Barrison being out is the opportunity for some stories about her family. This is a bit of a disconnection for her. her, her one connection to her family, or her main connection. There are a few other living characters that know about her family, that, yeah. that met them, that, that worked with them, etc. Varus being one in particular who is apparently her ally in the show. Yeah. And... So he knows a few things about the Mad King and about Rhaegar. <laughs> so it's going to be Varys or Tyrion, hasn't it, telling her these things? Like, like, like I said, Tyrion having read stuff or you know heard heard stuff on his travels or whatever. And uh, you know, is Varys going to show up and do it? Tyrion? Tyrion and Varys together could take over the Barristan role. Yeah, that's, it seems to be the way it's going. They're they're really cleaning, they're kind of cleaning house around Danny in a sense now. She's, she's kind of left, she's got Dario. In a span of her three episodes, because she wasn't in one of the episodes, we see Masador go down. Then Barristan, and now Grey Worm's at least out of action for a while, if he's alive at all. And yeah, so she's just, she really, it's, it's driving home the point that we kind of already knew that she needed help. Now we're really seeing she needs really needs help. She yep. needs it even more than she had before. You know what I thought about recently? was I was trying to think about when the last time we saw um, Daenerys and Missandei alone together talking. That hasn't happened this season at all, has it? It hasn't happened this season. I'm trying to remember the last time it happened last season. I know it happened last season, but it wasn't very a huge, a big part of it. But uh, Come to think of it, Missandei has done almost nothing at all this season. Yeah, she's, I guess that's she, coming. She had, that, she had a question for Grey Worm. Yeah, they are right. That might have been but, her only dialogue this season. Yeah, I, I, it's I, I'm kind of I, I kind of miss it. I'd, I'd like to see Daenerys interact with Missande a little more personally. It's a dynamic that I really miss. Um, it's not going to be the same in the show, no matter what, because Missande is such a little girl, you know, in the in the books. But her the mother dynamic was a lot of what I really liked about that. Um, for her and paralleling her, you know, 
actual people that she's called mother to. And I, 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 anyways, I'm not sure. I, I kind of thought they'd have like a, a perhaps a sexual dynamic between Daenerys and a Missande for a while. I was thinking that, and nothing. They haven't even interacted. <laughs> yeah, the way HBO is, you could tell them like they wouldn't want to miss out on that. Yeah, but I don't think the actresses were so down for that. Yeah, Amelia yeah. <laughs> Clark has made a lot of comments about how, about her nudity and she's, and like, how I'm not she's doing empowered that. now. She doesn't have to be nude. Yeah, like she's that, like, I am. So. I, I'm. I'm a yeah. veteran actress now. They can't make me take my yeah, clothes off it's anymore. <laughs> like I say, no. These are staying on. <laughs> yeah. And so, Yoko, you had some thoughts on an interesting parallel to Barristan's going out scene and how it touches on what we aren't going to see, presumably in a pit scene um, later. Yeah, I would hesitate to use the word parallel. Yeah, it's not a parallel. It's, it's a very loose maybe, maybe, maybe it's something in essence, right? In essence, in, yeah. In, it, when, uh, when Drogon is going a bit mental in Dasnak's pit and... Danny at that stage doesn't really know what she's doing. She she recalls that she sees Baristan just run, like running up to Dro, Drogon, saying, "Over here, try me." He says he, he's ready to get roasted for Danny. He's just like you said before. He's badass. Uh, he, he he's totally you know fearless. Just went went up to Drogon. No 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 fear of getting. Just, just to try and let Danny get away, he would do just that. for that, yeah. Uh, and and here you have him, kind of, you know, the the similar kind of essence of his fearless nature, where he would do something for others, and um, you, you know, even to his own detriment. So definitely not a parallel, but just a little essence, I think. So we're definitely, as we mentioned briefly before, we're definitely heading straight towards a marriage for Danny to Hisdar, as is predicted by the book plots of the same nature. Hisdar is a bit of a different character in the show. He's a lot more sympathetic than than he is in the book so far, even though he's not exactly a fully fleshed out character. <laughs> what little we get of him, he's a lot more charismatic, he's a lot more reasonable, he's not a doofus like Hisdar in the books. Hisdar in the book, book Hisdar is very doofusy on purpose. It's not bad writing by any means. It's just a different character. It's, it's pretty impossible to like him in the books. Yeah. This this show version of him has some likable qualities, and we'll see if that goes up or down. I assume that we'll see a bit more of him when they get married. What do you what do, what do you think of this Hisdar so far? Do you think he's got any deeper plans, any deeper thoughts? Uh, I don't know. I get. I just get. I think it's just because of the books. I just get this. I don't know if I, I'm. I'm curious what Sean. I should ask Sean what he thinks of Hisdar because I just mm. get this this feel that it's just like this this glean on his surface that he's not really mm. this person he's pretending to be. That's interesting because I feel like, I feel like he's genuine, but you might be right. I wouldn't. I, don't I definitely know. don't. Feel I, super I think confident. I think I'm just on edge about Hisdar having other things, you know, up his sleeve. Well, could he be involved with the sons? Of the harpy. I mean, his little speech was in, interspersed. You could you could interpret it that way. Yeah. You know, that that's not my interpretation, but I could see how you could interpret that they interspersed that to hit, hit, uh, hint at a link between his dar and the sons of the harpy. He's from a noble house. They seem to represent the message of the noble people. That's a good point. In the in the books too, the deal is Danny says ninety days without a murder. And I'll marry you. And that is mm-hmm. what happens. So 90, I don't know if they'll do 90 days, but she's uh, probably going to have to ask for some sort of similar concession. Like, hey, 
prove to me that you can do this or that, then I'll yeah. marry you. She needs she needs some sort of proof of authority or proof that he can do it. Which, of course, because he succeeds in that in the books, it touches on what you're saying there, your boy, about how it it, very, it ties him to the sons of the harpy maybe more than one might have initially thought. And that might be like you're saying, Shay. That might be why they're showing him to be sympathetic in that, just yeah. to make it a real surprise when yeah, he turns I'm out sure. to be. I have no idea. I, I'm. Have, have you? Ta- I don't know that I've talked to Sean specifically about what he thinks of his dar. I like. It's kind of awkward because sometimes I can't ask him like, "What do you think of his dar?" Because just that question makes him think that he should <laughs> think something more of his dar. Right. <laughs> what should I think? So of I his have dar? to like wait sometimes for him to bring it up. Try to ask him in weird ways. I'll, I'll figure something out to ask. When him. the yeah. Now just to be clear, Sean is our is our is our co-host for our show only reviews. He's only read the first book. So he has a very analytical mind, but not knowing some of the things we do, he occasionally has really interesting perceptions on things that we wouldn't have caught because he's approaching it from a, with what's a must, much different information. He, he's not biased, he doesn't have these expectations that we have because we, we can't help divorce what we know about the books from what we think might be coming in the show. So we'll have a chance to ask him, I, th- I suppose, yeah. when, when the idea of marriage comes up. That, that yeah, will make that, that'll it be, a more reasonable question. Yeah. yeah, because you're right. That's a very, it's really hard to ask unsullied people questions without giving away something. You're like, what do you think of, like, how do you ask somebody about John? Like, what do you think about Jon Snow's mother? And think, what, I never thought about Jon Snow's <laughs> mother. You're like, ah, I shouldn't have asked you. <laughs> <laughs> But so that's a good idea, by the way, listeners out there. Tell us your experiences with your unsullied friends and and (laughs) interesting conversations that have come, interesting crackpot predictions they've made that turned out to be really silly or things that they just totally nailed. Uh, We enjoy hearing those stories a lot, and and some of the good ones we maybe will put on online here. We'll we'll talk about them in some of our future episodes. When do we think the marriage is going to happen, real quick? the episode? the episode? That is, yeah, I don't think it'll just happen next episode. That seems seems too rushed. It hasn't even been brought up as a possibility Well, my thought is that Daenerys was in all white in the fighting pit episode. Yeah. And so it looked to me like maybe it's like a joint wedding fighting pit scene. They could combine that. So, because she's she's clearly in all white. Daenerys does not just wear that all white getup. Good call, yeah. uh, Hmm. And so that's the fighting pit scene with Jorah and Tyrion were shown there as well. Yeah, Tyrion's sitting by Daenerys and Jorah's in it. (laughs) It's worth mentioning that in the books, I mean, it's not on their wedding is kind of off page it, it yeah. just kind of leaves her. I think it's a very long ceremony and she comes out tied up yeah. tied together with him but I don't, I don't think there's any description of you know total exuberance or anything it's all off page there is not yeah it's yada 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 it's, it's, it's something along the lines of she puts on her outfit and then and then yeah. four hours later she was married <laughs> it was very she does yeah, all he, the different they have all those different like traditional things they want her to do yeah um, and I, I'm guessing that that Giscari mm, weddings don't yeah. have seven course ten course twelve course meals because otherwise George would not have wasted an opportunity to describe all that <laughs> Giscari food <laughs> <laughs> So right. clearly, that's not a big part of Giscari weddings. Food, they don't, or they just eat a lot of unborn, dog. Or unborn puppies. <laughs> what do they have? Un, unborn puppies on a stick and stuff yeah, like they, that. They really, yeah, George really found a way to yeah, make the Giscari dislike just by their food that they eat. Right, just <laughs> a culture that eats right. dog is a really good way to turn people off right away. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. So and 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 it goes gets worse because remember I think it's Dario that says this this Giscari will eat anything mm-hmm. except man or dragon and they would eat dragon if they could. <laughs> so and we even hear that they do eat man because of the starvation that's happening in some of the slavers' base cities. <laughs> so apparently right. they'll eat they'll even they eat man. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. So, there you go. The Giscari, the Giscari meal plan all described. You didn't think you were getting that in, from History of Westeros, did you? But there you go. Yeah, you know, there's that the Feast of Ice and Fire book where you yeah. read a cookbook. We're going to make a Giscari Feast of Ice and Fire. <laughs> <laughs> food. All your locusts cooking uh, <clears throat> secrets. People will ask us, is this a cookbook or a book of horrors? <laughs> Because every single meal in here sounds horrifying. Boy, illegal yeah, as well as illegal. <laughs> Read the cookbook that was banned all throughout the U.S. <laughs> Let us talk about the people who make the show possible. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. Hand of the King, Cash Craig, a.k.a. Vaxis on the History of Westeros forums. And sometime player of Mario Kart with us. Warden of the North, Lord Parker, the bastard of Starkville. Our southwestern and eastern borders are still undefended. Help us out if you can. Our master of coin is Lord Robert Jacobs. Our Grand Maester Itai. Our Grand Maester Itai? Our Grand Maester is Itai, who wears the jeweled collar of many medals. Rosie the Clever is our master of laws. Lord James Tuttle is our master of ships. History of Westeros Night's Watch Lord Commander is George the Golden. History of Westeros Kingsguard is commanded by Lord Commander Shepard. Sir Troy the Steady swings the Valyrian steel blade fate as the History of Westeros King's Justice. Lady Dyerlis of Castle Naki and Lord Nathan of the Firefort provide the realm with lordly support as well. You can also support History of Westeros other than through Patreon. You can make a straight donation through historyofwesteros.com. You can also buy books music, or anything from Am- through Amazon.com. If you use the links on the right side of historyofwesteros.com, anything you purchase through there will cost the same as if you had gone straight to Amazon, but we'll get a little credit for it. That's a good way to help us out while doing your regular shopping anyway. So keep sending us questions and suggestions. I'm really loving the feel of these discussions. It's, it isn't just the four of us. It's, it's all of us. All of you out there are participating with us. We're all friends in a Song of Ice and Fire fandom, and we're all along, on along the ride for this crazy show divergence No more fest. spoilers. No more spoilers. No more leaked episodes. Point. We are past the leaks. That's great. Yes. So now you can ask. Now people can not worry about spoiling us, and we won't worry about spoiling other people. Of course, we, had, we didn't look ahead, so we didn't yeah. have much to spoil people on. No, we did get spoiled so on some things that we didn't intend to be. Yeah. Without watching the episode, we heard <laughs> some things. It's because people told us things. <laughs> yeah. But together we can make sense of what we can, uh, learn to live with what we can't, and vent about the things we can't learn to live with. So that we have six more episodes to go this season. We're not quite at the halfway point, but I know a lot of you watchers out there feel the same way as us. So join us next week for episode five as we reach the halfway point in HBO's most popular show of all time. We'll commiserate once more. Thank you, Lady Gwen and Yoke Boy of Radio Westeros. We talked about you guys' recent episode of Barristan and Brienne. It was is also a recent episode, but you guys also have an episode on Melisandre, which is, touches on some things we talked about this episode. So all y'all out there need to be checking that out. Yeah, come and check us out at RadioWestros.com. Yeah. We, we do these podcasts. You know, if you like History of Westeros, I think you'll like us. Uh, come and give, it, give us a try. That's all I can say. Yeah, out. do so. You won't be and, disappointed. Uh, thanks very much for inviting us on, on the show again today, and I hope all your listeners and watchers 
enjoying it. And I, I love the fact that they're participating too. This is right up my alley. Lady Gwen, right. thanks to you as well. And Second. thanks to Asher as always. Thank you yeah. guys who were feeling under the weather and got to join us today. Despite that, it would have been not as good if it was just me and Lady Gwen. I'm sure we would have done a decent job, but it's much better to have four of us as well as all you listeners whose suggestions yeah. and questions have added very much to what we're able to bring to you. So thanks again, and Valar Margulis, we will see you next week.